Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for being listeners of Web3 with me. I want to take a few seconds to tell you about my exciting new B2B offering. It is the mission here to educate. I sincerely believe Web3 can make the world better for more people. Businesses shouldn't be left out, though, so I've launched The Web3 Coach. It's a bespoke education experience designed to help your team understand how Web3 affects your particular industry or company and identify opportunities unique to Web3. Whether you have a law or accounting firm with a growing number of clients participating in Web3 through crypto and NFTs, or you're a real estate syndicate looking for different ways to raise money, or teams just of fast-growing Web3 companies who want to understand your customers and your new teammates, I make sure you can talk the talk and leave feeling more confident about this crazy new world. Please take a minute to check out my website at theweb3coach.xyz. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. My guest today is Brian Zwerner. He's an investor and advisor in sports, media, Web3, and fitness. He is founder at Beyond the Game Network, a venture group of athletes and business execs in Atlanta, Georgia. Zwerner also leads the Crypto Executive Guide, an advisory business in Web3, and the publisher of a market-leading newsletter. Zwerner was previously the founder of Sportal, a startup in the sports industry. He managed the growth of Aquina Health through a Series A capital raise. He has invested in or held senior roles with several companies and funds. Previously, Zwerner spent 20 years in investment banking roles in the U.S. and overseas. LFG, baby. Let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks. Great to be here. I'm super excited for this conversation. You and I have had uh, a few times to connect once in real life and and once uh, over Zoom. And uh, I don't know, it just it seems like you are going down the path that is going to help proliferate Web3. And I like just to unpack your insights into consumer investing and stuff is going to be a lot of fun today. Awesome. It's always exciting to find uh, people in the Web3 world here in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a small but mighty group, so we're excited to see what they can we can all do here. I can always appreciate the background, too, by the way. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, Brian has the uh, big Atlanta that is spelled out in front of the Atlanta Hawks Stadium uh, downtown right across from Mercedes-Benz. It looks like that picture was taken while the Benz was being uh, constructed because I see some cranes back there. Uh, yeah, the fully up now, kind of, so good to go and amazing. ready to go. That's awesome. That's awesome. If I didn't have a virtual background, I would have a big Atlanta sign. I think the first time you and I met, I used to tell people I'd just kind of point to it when they asked where I was from. <laughs> that's 
That makes it easy. <laughs> well, cool. So um, the way I always like to start these episodes is um, I want my guests to get to know you a little bit better. And I know you have uh, a lot of stuff to talk about in the Web3 context, but uh, what I'm asking for when I ask for a founding story is I want to hear like what makes Brian, Brian. I know you've had a lot of other experience outside of, of this too. So um, start wherever you feel comfortable. Uh, well, I'll, I'll guess I'll start at the beginning. Born in Brooklyn, moved down to Miami when I was relatively young, Went to uh, grew up there, went to high school, did uh, college in the Northeast, and then spent 20 years in capital markets investment banking roles uh, in the U.S. initially, overseas for a little while. Um, worked in fixed income sales and trading, traded uh, bonds and, and fixed income derivatives uh, for about 20 years in a variety of different places, traded in pretty much every every market, every currency, and uh, I've never done the exact math, but I'm extremely comfortable saying I've traded at least a trillion dollars with a T uh, wow. worth of securities over the course <laughs> of my career. So um, ran some big groups, uh, worked with the largest banks, hedge funds, asset managers, and insurance companies across the world here uh, over the course of the early part of my career, I'll say the first stage of my career. Um, brought myself down to Atlanta in 2008, uh, so been here for the last uh, 14 years now, which has been great. Love living here. Uh, caught the startup bug in the mid-2010s. I ran a um, fintech-enabled small business lender working with healthcare clients around the country called um, Aquina Health. We lent money to doctors and dentists and home healthcare agencies and all kinds of different folks in the medical field, generally small businesses or, or, or doctor-run practices. That was a lot of fun. Did that from 2014 to 2017. We sold that business to uh, a controlling interest in that business to a larger finance company based here in Atlanta called Atlanticus. And um, so I exited in 2017. Still had the startup uh, bug in me, decided I wanted to do another one. And uh, that led me to start a company in the high school and youth sports space called Sportal. Uh, that we had some tech products for the youth sports market and uh, ended up pivoting the business most of 2018. We were a media company covering high school sports in Georgia. That was a blast and a lot of fun, uh, but a super tough place to make a dollar. Uh, uh, met some wonderful people, had some great experiences, but realized it was not going to be a profitable business like ever. Uh, and so shut that business down at the end of 2018. Was working with a lot of NFL players at that time uh, who were helping me with the stuff we we're doing with high school football. And one of them suggested showing the crazy world of startups and technology and venture capital and digital media sharing all those cool experiences with his NFL friends. And that was the launch of what I've been doing for the last four years, which is called Beyond the Game Network, a group of athletes and, and business and tech execs here in Atlanta that uh, partner with startups and bring these athletes in to help them grow and be super successful. I'll take a pause there. That's a whole lot in a short period. Yeah, and I want to unpack it from from the very beginning. I think, um, you know, I would be interested to hear, like, as you were getting into capital markets, was that something, like, how, how did you become interested in it? Was it just, is it a, a family thing? Like, how, how did you get there? Oh, because no, spent... that was the uh, 1980s popular Michael Lewis book, uh, Liar's Poker. That was all the rage when I was an undergrad. Uh, Liar's Poker uh, depicted the mortgage bond trading shop at Salmon Brothers with, uh, with all these crazy characters and huge money being thrown around. And man, I read the darn book and I was entranced and enthralled. I thought it sounded like a fun environment that I wanted to be a part of. That is so interesting. So you were reading that in college? Yeah, yeah. I read it uh, in college um, and wanted to get into that space and uh, uh, did that straight out of undergrad. Went to work in, uh, in fixed income derivatives trading in 1995. And uh, found my way over to mortgage and securitization around 2000, 
around 2000. Uh, so it was in uh, related areas to the Liars Poker Book, though not directly the exact same thing. So when you were transitioning, I guess, after 20 years in capital markets, having done all kinds of uh, all over the world, uh, and, and from what I understand from other conversations, being all over the world is what it required. This was not just sitting at the home office on Zoom calls, right? No, uh, no, we didn't have Zoom <laughs> back then. Uh, 2002 to 2005, I lived in London, was based over there, uh, ran a big business for Bank of America out of London that included all of Western Europe and the Middle East. Um, and then uh, ultimately Southeast Asia, traveled extensively across Europe, uh, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, mainland China, Taiwan. I was in all those countries at least once a quarter for about five years, uh, both the time I lived in London and then after that when I moved back to the United States, I was traveling globally like that for, for three years. So yeah, spent time in all those markets, have traded in virtually every currency that um, that exists uh, either, you know, government bonds or interest rate swaps or foreign exchange. So yeah, been been involved in all those markets. Had a lot of fun. Met some really interesting people all over the world. Uh, doing it. What 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 of the skills did you learn over the course of those twenty years that you felt like helped you transition into an operator of a startup business that also that did so well? You know, I was always an entrepreneur. Uh, I was always the person at uh, Bank of America and later at, you know, uh, Wachovia Bank, which became Wells Fargo now. I was always the person kind of building the new businesses, creating the new products. I, uh, I had a permanent uh, invitation, it seemed like, to the Bank of America New Product Committee, which was headed up by the chief risk officer of the entire bank and, and made up of board members of the bank. Um, you know, I was always trying to find the new thing, the new way to bring new products to our clients. So I felt like I had a lot of entrepreneurial spirit, even if I was working in, you know, one of the biggest banks in the entire world. Um, and, uh, and really, you know, wanted to explore that part of, of my career, of my skill set, and get into a place where I didn't have the support network of such a big company behind me and see if I could do it. Um, and that's what kind of led me to entrepreneurship in the mid-2010s. Yeah, so you went in, you're you're in Atlanta. Atlanta is now known and and has been in the recent future for being a big fintech startup uh, hub, right? Um, but I I mean I imagine you were pretty early to that, and if you were coming in 2012, right? Yeah, there were a couple of other interesting things going on around you know kind of digital direct to consumer lending. Um, and, uh, and some places of that that were interesting and exciting. You know, Atlanta's always been a good place for technology around finance with the big payments processors, WellPay and Tesis here in Georgia. Obviously, a lot of banks and, and asset management as well. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, around that time in 2014, um, some of the companies that were doing peer-to-peer -peer lending were getting really hot. Uh, lending Club um, and uh, Prosper were doing consumer lending where they were funding those loans by basically matching borrowers and lenders. And we had kind of followed a very similar model. Uh, on Deck was one of the biggest players, not On Deck, the uh, ODX, the, the venture fund, but On Deck Capital was the, one of the biggest players in lending to small businesses across the country. They actually went public while I was running Aquina Health and we competed with them on a daily basis. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot going on around that space and it was a lot of fun. And you know, it was an interesting time as we were building out technology rails, uh, doctors and dentists and, and these other medical practices that we were working with were all using these medical practice management systems or PMS for short, uh, mm -hmm. basically a platform where when you go see the doctor, they have to bill either Medicare or your private insurance company. Um, they would use a technology platform and some of those have gotten very, very large called like Greenway and Athena. Cario, these were some of the partners that we had. So we would plug into the to the medical practices 
um, billing system, basically. Uh, and we would feed that information to make our loan decisions and to make our to get our repayments. And so we had built some really cool tech that kind of tied into that. We were you know, one of the first people using it for lending purposes, or maybe the only one for our knowledge. Um, and that was a cool, cool business to be in. And, and we got some nice national scale out of that. That's awesome. That's awesome. What, what was the, uh, what were some of the notable, I guess, either changes in mind or, or new like kind of mental models or frameworks that you picked up uh, in your role uh, at a startup that you hadn't picked up from, you know, the capital markets experience? Oh, wow. I mean, I made every mistake in the book and, uh, and learned a tremendous amount over that first experience. Uh, you know, some of my more favorite learnings, uh, at a startup, you know, coming to from big banks where I had large budgets to hire big groups of people. Then I got to a startup, I had very little budgets to hire very few people. Uh, probably my biggest learning was, um, you know, hire the very best people instead of the most people. You're better off with one person that is awesome and super mission aligned at a startup than you are with two or three seat fillers who don't want to be there. Uh, that was an enormous learning, a huge mistake that I made. I, we had roles to fill, and I didn't have enough money to hire the right kind of people. I hired whatever people I could afford. It turned out to be a huge mess, constantly rehiring, retraining. Um, learned a lot about business-to-business -business marketing. Uh, if you've ever tried to sell anything to a doctor, you'll learn that uh, there's an enormous <laughs> amount of people that are trying to keep you away from that doctor so that doctor can keep practicing medicine during the day and not talking to <laughs> drug reps and, you know, and uh, tech companies and other people who want to sell them goods and services like lending. Now, if they uh, want so, to take you to a really nice dinner, <laughs> we're happy like to have getting the to the point where you can invite the doctor to a nice dinner was a challenge. <laughs> I mean, there were just, you know, there was, a, you know, always a person at the front desk whose job it was to keep us away. And we, uh, we tried everything from direct mail to knocking on doors to, email to content marketing to uh, cold calling with callers from the, uh, you know, kind of college grads to uh, lower, uh, lower cost callers in the U.S. to overseas cold callers. I mean, <laughs> we did everything to try to find different ways to reach these medical practice managers, whether they were doctors or home health care agents or whatever it was. And, and uh, you know, I learned a tremendous amount about what it takes, learned a lot about selling through partners. That was another really big learning um, one of the partners that we had was one of the top two practice management systems. They had hundreds of thousands of medical practices using their platform. And we were so excited. We celebrated the moment we got onto the platform. And then we were told that they send an email out to like 500,000 medical practice managers once a month. Uh, and then we were told that there were over 50 partners and they only put one in per email. And so it was going to be about three years before it was our turn. <laughs> that email. And so, you know, we, uh, we had celebrated the victory. Uh, yeah, we'd celebrated the victory way too early of being a partner there and, uh, and learned that, you know, working through partners as a sales channel can be very, very challenging. That, is that know, their the form of like, is that their on. form of screening their participants? Is like, hey, if your business actually lasts the three-year waiting period, then you deserve to be in our newsletter. You know, the, <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, the, you know, I think the attitude was, hey, you're a partner in this platform. And I don't know, maybe 20% of the medical practices in the United States are using this platform. So their feeling was just go call on everybody. You got a one in five shot that they're one of our customers already. And if not, maybe you'll help them become a customer. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, just a tremendous amount of learnings, a lot of fun, um, uh, you know, a, a good experience. And that led me to my second startup, the uh, high school sports one.
Yeah, which is a, a big turn in a way, right? Like you've been in the uh, presumably B2B world. You know, I'm sure that term can, is very abstract uh, compared to all the different clients that you had serviced over those, you know, 30 or so years doing business. But you get to the, the media sports world. Um, what what is the shift to consumer? You know, this, it's a big shift. Uh, you yeah, know, I mean, I spent a long time, you know, a decade as a sports parent, coach, assistant coach, team manager, and fan. Uh, both of my kids who are now in college played a lot of sports growing up. My son basketball and my daughter volleyball at a, at a pretty high level, both, you know, youth sports, high school sports, travel sports, um, had done, uh, you know, pretty much everything as a dad and a, and a fan across all of that. And, and frankly, I just saw tons and tons of problems in the youth sports market. Um, you know, the, the, the challenges put on the kid, on the parents, on the coaches, the team managers, the the schools and everything. And I just felt, man, there's got to be a way to fix some of these problems. And, and I kind of went in it with, you know, uh, fixing my own problems. And we started with a real specific technology solution called Sportal Space. Sportal Space was an online platform like OpenTable or Airbnb for travel sports teams to rent gyms and fields. You know, in a big city like Atlanta, there's something like 5,000 travel sports teams across kids basketball and soccer and baseball and so on and so on. And they all need a place to practice and train. Um, Some of them have a dedicated location, but most of them don't. They're just popping around from gym or field to field. And, uh, and so this was supposed to be a platform to do that. We had gotten about a hundred gyms and fields on the platform on our, on our site by the end of, end of 2017, beginning of 2018. And I just ran into uh, a lot of issues with scaling that business, but, you know, try to solve a problem that I saw that I, I was suffering through that. I knew hundreds and hundreds of other group people in Atlanta were suffering through. Figured if we could get it right here, we could take it national. We were one of about four or five other people to try something somewhat similar in this kind of gym and field rental space. It's a, it is a real problem, but it is. It is so fragmented and so difficult to solve uh, because the schools and the school districts that control them or the counties that control them generally have say over who uses their facilities. And it's a very difficult challenge to get through. So were you manually? I'm just like, I'm so interested in these early startup days when, you know, you might have been even driving to these schools to go talk to them on site and be like, look. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were going in there, you know, it was a funny learning. We would go in, our initial sales pitch was, hey, your gym is empty, you know, five out of seven nights a week. And, you know, if you just let people rent that gym from, you can make an extra couple hundred bucks a week, a couple thousand bucks a month, 20, 30 grand a year. That's a lot of money that can support your programs, whether you're a rec center or, you know, or a, or a church or a, a fitness center, you know, it's an extra 20, 25 grand a year you can do something with, you know, would you like to join our platform and make your gym available? And we got a resounding no thank you as the answer to that. They were just not financially motivated. And we took a break and we're like, wow, we've really got this wrong. How do we fix it? We went back in with a completely different sales pitch. We went to the people at the front desk at these facilities and we said, hey, there's all these kids in your area, in your neighborhood, and they're sitting at home with a Xbox controller in one hand and a bag of Cheetos in the other hand. Wouldn't you love to have them out in the gym, you know, getting some exercise and being around positive role models and, and doing something, you know, fun and active? And they said, sure, sign us up. I mean, it was bananas. What? So they didn't care I mean, about the We were the money. selling the exact same product with a totally uh, different tilt. And we uh, went from 10 gyms to 100 in like two months with that sales pitch. What the was Cheetos the... Cheetos and the Xbox. That really got people going. 
I promise we'll get to web three folks at some point, but I have got to unpack this because like those pivots in just framing, not even product, right? The product like, was exactly the same. Yeah. The offering was the same. The only difference was how we, yeah, framed it, explained it, whatever. It it made all the difference in the world. It was a wonderful experience um, yeah. about really understanding your audience, your customer and, and, and then what was most important to them, what was most important to the people that were in those roles was not a little bit of extra cash. Um, and even for the positive good it could do for their programs, but it was it was about helping the community and and really you know we really had to understand who they were and what they were about to to, to really frame that the right way and to make it something that they was really valuable to them. Otherwise, we couldn't get anybody on the platform. <laughs> what uh, did any of the other platforms succeed in scaling, or was it just no? A- you know, really, it's it, it, it. There's a couple of platforms that haven't aggregated up the available gyms and fields, but there are a couple of groups that already have facilities management for schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything from you know managing the janitorial staff to the lights to the air conditioning, um, they offer the schools the ability to make their gym available for rent or their fields available for rent through these platforms that already are in there. So they have uh-huh. already gone through the arduous process of selling the school or school district on their technology platform. Mm-hmm. And the school is already a customer. This becomes an add-on. So you yeah. will see the ability, you know, to book a, a local gym, necess- you know, potentially near you through an online platform. But that platform is doing way more than just gym booking. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we've seen some scale. Nobody's yeah. really figured out how to do it as a, as a youth sports-focused kind of tech company. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's definitely a problem worth fixing. For sure. I hope somebody does it, but it ain't going to be me. (laughs) You gave it your all. So then uh, I guess after that, uh, you pivot to to venture, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We were, you know, we ended up building this media company covering high school sports. We were sending reporters and videographers out to hundreds of games in 2018. Had partnered with the Georgia High School Athletic Association. We're uh, live streaming games on the internet. We had a lot of fun. The coaches loved us. The players and their families loved us. Just couldn't build any scale to it. But uh, I had a whole bunch of NFL players that were helping me with high school football. And when we wrapped that business up at the end of 2018, made the tough decision to close it, uh, my color commentator for high school football broadcast was an eight-year NFL veteran named Andre Fluella. And uh, Flew grew up around here in Atlanta, played his college ball under Bobby Bowden at Florida State. Go Knowles. One. And, uh, and then was drafted in the third round, played eight years in the NFL from 2018, sorry, 2008 to 2016. He was on the mic with us every Friday night, and he said, wow, this is the coolest stuff, like venture and startups and technology and digital media and social media. He's like, we need to show this to all my athlete buddies. This is just too cool. And so that's what we started doing. We started bringing together athletes with business and finance and tech people here in Atlanta. They didn't really know what we were going to be. We just kind of thought it'd be fun to bring everybody together. Initially thought it was going to be an, an angel group with a bunch of athletes writing checks into startups. That was kind of early days where some of the really high-profile athletes like Andre Iguodala and Steph Curry were doing venture investing or angel investing. And LeBron and Kevin Durant were just starting to spin up that stuff. This was like end of 2018. And, uh, and we thought, you know, we had this funny question we asked ourselves, you know, how many Andre Fluellens that very few people in sports know does it take to equal one LeBron James? Uh, more than one, less than a thousand. Let's go figure out how many. And uh, and so off we went. We uh, we started talking to startups and athletes. Quickly realized that the athletes in the NFL, uh, unless you're a mega star, Pro Bowler, Hall of Fame caliber player, you just really venture investing, early stage angel investing is it's just not appropriate. 
the risk reward is just too high risk. And so I plugged in people from my business finance and tech background into an investing syndicate and uh, started working with startups in early 2019. Nice. And when, when in this point, are you, what's your, uh, I guess, aligning crypto journey through this? I mean, we're, <laughs> we're through a few bubbles at this point. Um, we've, we've seen Ethereum launch in 2015. You've seen the ICO bubble in 2017, early 2018. Altcoins are going through the roof. Are you following any of this at the same time? Barely. I'll admit I was in the crypto is for criminals camp up until, uh, the, you know, early tw- mid 2020. You know, I think my funniest moment around it was uh, the guy that ran sales for me at Aquina uh, Health back in 2016 told me his, you know, 17 year old son was using all his Christmas gifts to buy Bitcoin. And I'm like, that stuff is going to crash. If that's who's buying this, it's going to zero. And obviously it did crash shortly after that. So I felt vindicated and smart. And just sort of moved on. Ego stroke. Uh, Ego stroke. You know, look, I mean, it was pretty clear to me that that was not going to work. If, uh, you know, Jack's son was using his Christmas money to buy crypto, that was what was (laughs) propping the market up. I'm like, this is stupid. And so uh, I kind of read it off. I'll I'll admit I didn't look that carefully. I didn't uh, pay that much attention to it. And uh, but loop back around. So we, you know, we launched this venture group. We've since made 20 investments. Seed Series A, Series B companies around entertainment, so sports, media, esports, and gaming and gambling, and fitness and health and wellness. Areas where having athletes involved can help. We've got this big crew now, 31 former pro athletes, mostly NFL guys like my partner Andre, but a handful of men's and women's athletes and basketball, soccer, track, who help out all the companies in our portfolio. And I guess we first heard about this back in summer 2020. Someone that we knew in the venture world was connected to a, a, an NBA player who was uh, working very early with Dapper Labs around their NBA Top Shot product. Uh, we thought we were going to get into the Series A round of the Dapper Capital Raise uh, through this NBA player that we we're friends with. And uh, unfortunately, that round got wildly oversubscribed. But we really didn't, I really didn't know about it in the context of, uh, of NFTs, blockchain, Web3. Those words weren't really used the way that Dapper described the product. It was just digital highlights of NBA plays and that was enough to get me excited and uh and that was kind of our first exposure when when Top Shot came out I was relatively early buying in Top Shot highlights and packs and really got a chance to experience what that was and 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 I would say got you know fully red-pilled when we saw um a couple of high-profile NFL players in spring early 2021 you know Rob Gronkowski and Pat Mahomes both did uh, big NFT drops to their fans making two and three million dollars each off of it. And that was really eye opening for us. That, that's when I really started paying attention and thinking, wait a minute, there's there's something real here. And there's there's an opportunity that's going to extend into the areas that we care about from an investing perspective. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, um, you know, I guess early on in your kind of venture career or like trying to team up with athletes, you went through this process of like, Hey, let's try letting them invest at first. But you know, there just wasn't an alignment maybe of, you know, time and skills and and risk reward appetite there. Um, Now you're seeing them almost as creators um, be able to go and capitalize in this, in this area. But there was also a few drops that didn't go so well. And, um, you know, that, that was, it was a very interesting time. I, I wonder, I'm trying to think like from a cyclical perspective, if there's been other times where, uh, media entertainment has jumped on a similar idea, uh, or if this is really the first time just because of that level of ownership that web three enables. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you can look back to the way some of the, um, you know, direct-to-consumer digital media companies were built in the early days of Web2, um, you know, kind of highly reliant on the Facebook algorithm to surface their content to viewers or highly reliant on early versions of the YouTube algorithm to surface their content to viewers. Uh, people built big businesses off the back of that and then just got absolutely clobbered when the, uh, you know, when the algos changed and, and the view contents just fell off a cliff. You can think about, you know, kind of some of the challenges that early things like BuzzFeed and, and similar areas where, you know, people didn't control the end relationship with their actual customer. Uh, or the ability to kind of get their stuff in front of the customer. And they had, you know, big businesses built fast, mm -hmm. uh, accumulated a lot of views, and then, you know, dropped off hard when Instagram, Facebook, and, and other platforms kind of changed the way that they surface content. So we have seen a bit of a rush into that. I think, you know, at this point that those rules are pretty well understood and people under, you know, know now how to create the right kind of content and build their audience such that they can build very, very large businesses that can be relied on you know, using those Web2 distribution platforms. So, you know, I think there'll be some learnings here from this. Look, we've seen a number of athletes and uh, and even team and league partnerships that have done fabulous, you know, NBA Top Shot, so rare in Europe with European football. And we've seen a lot of individual athletes that have made money, but many, many, many more who have done drops that just haven't gone anywhere, uh, that haven't really created the right kind of communities, that haven't brought in enough money to bring the support and resources that they need. So there's still a lot of learning, I think, to go there. Um, you know, once we saw the Mahomes and, and Gronk drops, uh, we got excited about Web3 and, and NFTs specifically. Uh, started working with some very high-profile athletes that my partner, Andre Fluellen, had played with during his career. Uh, and, you know, just kind of immersed ourselves in there. We met with a bunch of sports card artists who were doing cool things, both with physical trading cards and digital art. Uh, we met with all the platforms that were bringing these NFT projects to, uh, to fans. Uh, did a whole lot of work on it. Didn't end up bringing anything ourselves as a manager, but made our first investment in Web3 in summer 2021, so about just over a year ago now, in a company called Sports Icon that was bring, doing um, NFTs for, for, for big star athletes, uh, primarily out of Europe. The company's based in, in the UK. They worked with very, very large UK soccer stars on a number of NFT projects, and then started coming here to the States and working with athletes here, that was our first investment in the Web3 space, and uh, that company's doing awesome. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I guess from the other side of this, what, what I see happening during this same time period, having become immersed in the space and wanting to find a way to contribute on a full-time perspective, like you start, you start to see these people that they haven't necessarily built communities before, but they've been a part of so many NFT communities. And if they're able to, if they're a good thinker, if they're a smart person, like they're analyzing like what does well, what does not. And then you have new people that are coming in that have no experience in Web3, i.e. an athlete, but they know that they it's a good way to build a community. And so like at first, everybody is a community manager, right? Everybody is, is there to help you build NFT projects, but it seems like over time that has been refined and the ones that are actually doing a good job, like you're talking about, are starting to like just, you know, help on a more a scaled level. Yeah, look, it's hard. You know, you um, if you do an NFT drop and there's a roadmap, there's an expectation of what's going to happen. Uh, not every project turns into CryptoPunks or Board Ape. In fact, you know, 99.9% .9 of them don't turn into that. I hold so a lot of projects, those projects. 
Yeah, and those <laughs> projects are spinning off consistent royalties. They open the opportunity to do spinoff projects like Board Apes did with the Mutants and the, uh, and their um, digital land game, you know, that bring in consistent dollars in to continue to fund things over time. You know, the challenge with a lot of these, whether they're NFT drops or fan tokens, is they bring in money one time up front. Well, how do you keep the athlete or the creator or musician or whoever it may be, whoever's created that project, how do you keep them engaged? You know, because people are buying this, not buying it for that one-time pop. They want that athlete or that creator or that person who's, you know, sponsoring the project to be involved forever. Um, and, you know, if there's no additional dollars flowing in or limited additional dollars flowing in, how do you get that person who's got another job, you know, who isn't full-time focused on this project, who, if they're an athlete, has to focus on their body, their career, their playing days, everything that comes with that, anything they're doing off the field, they're a musician, they're creating music, they're touring. How do you keep them engaged in the project and keep them delivering utility and value um, you know, it's really challenging. And I think that's something that, you know, we're going to see a lot of change in the way that these projects are put together to try to make sure that there's enough incoming revenue over time and consistently over time to make sure that if fans, you know, if they, they didn't just buy something up front and they're going to get something back in perpetuity, that's just not a reasonable exchange. It's not going to work uh, because these people that, are, you know, the people that they want access to, that the fans want access to, they're busy and they got a lot of other um, things they can be doing with their time, both personally and professionally, and they need to be compensated for that time forever if you want them to stay involved forever, uh, yeah. not just up front. And yeah. I think that's where a lot of these projects have really run into challenges. Yeah, that um, it's it's really interesting, and uh, you you have it from the, the the perspective of of athletes and entertainers, and they all have other jobs. Let me tell you, even in the NFT communities where the founder's sole job is the NFT project, it's been hard to find that same traction, right? And that's that's what gives it the pyramidy kind of scheme feeling where they're like, oh, I'll just release another NFT. Oh, I'll just, you know, build a, a metaverse. Oh, I'll just like, you know, sound familiar? Like a lot of them did that. Yeah, Board Apes is like kind of the exception. Uh, you well, know, and that like, works because of the continued up pricing, which allowed yeah. them to earn royalties and also drip out things <laughs> from their treasury, right? right and create spinoff projects and bring in consistent revenue. So it's easy to keep everyone motivated while those things are happening. Um, but when those things aren't happening or things turn the wrong way, you know, it's very hard. You got to pay for this stuff, right? It's the, these metaverses don't build themselves. They take teams of developers. And even if it's just community, just getting people to show up and do things or attend events, nobody does this stuff for free forever. You know, and so I think you're going to see a lot of new platforms, new projects, new ways of thinking that, allow um, allow these projects to drip the revenue out to the contributors and creators so that um, so that they're compensated for their time and continue to support them over time and don't just get that one time you know cash grab at the beginning yeah I, I couldn't agree more I'm, and in the funny and like I, I continue to say this I'm coming at this from a different experience from a different perspective having been in in the different nft communities uh, I mean I may have joined one athlete based community um and but other than that it has been about the creators right um but but they're going the same way i i, I believe you're at nft nyc as well 
uh, you, we went to, you go to a few events. Um, I imagine also you were like me, you were kind of like, what, what is this? Like, what are these communities? How are they like, what is this brand kind of thing? Like how consistent is the narrative? What's the culture like? What are these people like? Uh, and, you know, I ended up being lucky enough to run into somebody from one of the larger talent agencies out there who had picked up uh, one of the projects I was involved in. And, you know, he looked at me, he goes, I'm going to be frank, like, our biggest goal for these by signing these these NFT projects is just to be able to have a party like this next year, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and obviously, there's much more intricacies to that answer. But I mean, it was how is this brand going to keep going other than than just engaging through a new NFT drop or a game or something like that? How are we going to bring this to the real world? Is there going to I mean, is there going to be books? Is there going to be games? Is there going to be children's books for some of these projects? Right. I mean, they are really becoming their own media brands. Right. Yeah. Um, in and of themselves. So it's I'm, I, there will be more than that. I mean, you go. I think we talked about maybe doodles a little bit. I know they're approaching it much more from a business perspective. I believe Moonbirds is, too. Um, and so you're, you're going to see these different approaches and, um, you know, that we'll see what works. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. I think, I think there is the financialization component of, of kind of like the incentive alignment that this NFT itself creates like this community. Um, it, it caused a lot of early speculation, but now that that is not as rampant, um, we're going to see what happens, right? Like we're going to see how it plays out um, as opposed to just, you know, people jumping in to, to make a buck. I want to be rich, right? Um, For sure. Well, you know, only I like to say only two of the 20 investments that we made in startups had, you know, some type of NFT token or, or DAO component to it the day we made the investment. And now nine of them have found their way there. Um, in some so, I'm sure no nudging by you at all. And no. honestly, I don't push people to it. If it's not authentic to really? the founder, it's not going to work. Um, yeah. And so I'll happily answer questions. I'll talk about things I've seen that work and don't work, but I'm not telling anybody to do it because, yeah. you know, and, and I think you alluded to this earlier, if it's not something that the founders are into, if they're not in these communities, if they're not participating and seeing what works and doesn't work in other places, if they're not living in discord and really making a home there, if they haven't figured out how to bring their users and customers into those types of communities, it's just not going to work. I mean, you might get some cash up front, but you're going to wreck the company. And so, no, I don't really push people to it. I'm happy to talk about it. I can talk about what I've seen and, and what I like and don't like in it. But I really don't. I wait for the founders to ask on that. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we just have, have got a lot of founders that are, you know, in and around gaming and entertainment and sports and areas where NFTs have been hot. Really, none of our fitness founders have made their way there yet. Uh, but there have been some, you know, modestly successful um, things in the fitness space. People are at least trying things in the fitness space. I'd like to see it. And, and you know, look, I, I'm a big believer in the ability to utilize these Web3 tools to build early community, to get over, to get the flywheel spinning, uh, to get over the, you know, the chicken and egg problems in the beginning that marketplaces have. I think there's some wonderful experiments being run now. And once people figure it out at scale and we see some real consumer successes, um, then people will be able to copy it and find things that work. I mean, the challenge has been that, you know, really outside of NBA Top Shot and So Rare and uh, NFT collectibles like, you know, like Board Apes and V Friends and, some, and Moonbirds and some others, you know, there really haven't been a lot of commercial successes that have helped. You've had some flash in the pan things like Axie Infinity and Step In on the fitness side, uh, but they haven't really shown the way. They've shown how to build hype and to build 
high fast moving tokens, but they haven't shown how to build, you know, consistent revenue generating businesses that people want to copy. You don't want to copy it on something that has collapsed. Um, and so you've got to find, you know, we need to see a couple of these things really get it right and reach mass scale, you know, real mass scale, hundreds of thousands of users, millions of users um, before there's going to be something that everyone can copy. Uh, and I think that we're not far away from that. I think we'll see some hits in the uh, video gaming space uh, that will come here soon. Um, and, you know, there's some possibilities. Uh, there's a couple things around sports, kind of following what So Rare did with um, um, NFT-based fantasy sports games. DraftKings is, seems to be putting a lot of resources behind their uh, NFT-based Rainmakers fantasy get football game that's coming out here. I uh, saw the preview of the Kevin Hart commercial that's going to be running all NFL season to promote it. It was funny as could be. You should check it out <laughs> if you haven't seen it. No, uh, definitely. And so they're, you know, they're putting real resources there. We could see, yeah. a, we could see that as the next big hit. Yeah, that's. I mean, look, it's it. It is an interesting, like from from the community perspective, right? Like there is a spectrum. I think nobody, no business, B two B or B two C, uh, or B two B to C, or B two C to B, whatever you want to call it, uh, none of them are going to say, "I don't want a community." Right. It's, it depends on who the community is. The cool thing about the sports uh, arena is that the community is already there. You just have to figure out to, how to be where the communities are. Right. Uh, and, and how to leverage that in a way that keeps those communities engaged and they don't feel like they're disconnected from the game uh, at all. Yeah, I look, I'm a huge believer in Web3. I mean, I think that, um, you know, companies trying to say they're not going to explore, think about how these can impact their customers, whether they're you know, consumers or businesses, I think they're they're just going to be dinosaurs. They're going to be extinct and yeah. be the same thing as a company a decade ago going, eh, I don't really need that social media thing. I don't want to have a Facebook account or any of these accounts. Uh, or 20 years ago saying, I don't really need a website. That's not really going to be important. Um, they'll all capitulate at some point uh, mm -hmm. or they'll go into business. Yeah. Uh, they'll be, you know, so I, I think we'll see every company will need a Web3 strategy. Look, the, the recent sell-off in the market and the more aggressive regulatory stance that we're seeing out of the SEC and the Department of Justice, that will give certain companies and certain industries the luxury to wait a few more years before they implement a Web3 strategy. It'll allow them to wag their finger and say, I told you so, um, for a little while. But, you know, I don't think that lasts. And, and I think, you know, within the next five years or so, every company will have some Web3 component, whether it's a token or whether it's a... NFT or whether it's some type of a, a DAO or shared governance, um, every company, it is every company in every industry is going to have to figure out how this impacts their business and, and integrate these tools because their customers are going to demand it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good segue too. I mean, to, to talk about how everybody has to have a Web3 strategy. Uh, one of my traditional questions that I ask all my guests uh, and then compile on a playlist so you can hear the variety of the answers is, you know, how do you define or explain Web3 to people? So, Brian, how do you do that? You know, Web3 is the third evolution of the Internet from Web1, which was having a website where people could read and interact with your content uh, or information, to Web2, where people could read and write. They could get out there and create and do things on social platforms like Facebook or YouTube, uh, to Web3, where people can read, write, and own, where you can have true ownership of your digital assets. That's how I define Web3. That can take the form of a non-fungible token or digital collectible. It could take the form of a token of some sort, or it could take the, fo the function of some type of shared 
ownership and governance, you know, using a, a crypto native company or DAO. Um, so that's kind of how I think about Web3 and, and it encompasses all of those areas. Yeah. And right before that, you said something that uh, really aligns with, you know, how people think about Web3 right now, which is that, you know, Web1 web early on of the Internet, you know, you were going to get left behind if you didn't think websites were a big deal. And then when Web2 comes along, you're going to get left behind if you think that social media is not a big deal. That's why, look, I haven't gotten on TikTok yet, but like every time there's something I always try to get on, right? Like it may not turn into the, to the point where I'm like sending snaps with my friends trying to get streaks, but you know, like I, I at least get on so that I understand and I don't become that, Oh, nobody needs that kind of technology guy. I mean, look, go back and, and read about it. If you're too young to remember it, I'm old enough to remember it, you know, but when the internet started, it was, it was, uh, you know, don't put your credit card into that website. Yeah. People were not comfortable putting their credit card and buying things online in Amazon, Brian, you know, just Brian, 20 years ago. I, I have to admit, and I will not name this person, uh, but a friend of mine um, who is older, uh, I told him we were, we just started a foundation, as you know, and we were putting in the donation button. He goes, well, how are you going to make sure people trust you to put their credit card in to make a donation? And I'm like, what? That, that, that's not an issue. That, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, look, the same thing happened when we moved to Web2, yeah. when we moved to the social networks. It's, you know, you're being catfish. Uh, These people aren't real. They're all fake. They're all trying to scam you. I mean, They're going to pull you road. in. And, <laughs> yeah, and look, you know, I, I think that, that we're hearing the same kind of things now. Uh, there was a fabulous podcast I listened to a couple months back with um, – Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon from A16Z talking about how all these challenges and, and, and concerns, the usability issues, the user interface issues, the, the scams, the, 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 the stealing of things from people's wallets, these are like punch list items for the builders of today, right? People are out there now, they're, getting, they're leaving their jobs in traditional tech and web one and web two companies. And they're joining and starting new companies who's, who are taking all these challenges, all the things that we all know is broken today in Web3. And, man, it's just a punch list. They're just, you know, they're going to knock their way through these items. And it's going to take a little while. And it's the same thing. Look, it took time before eBay integrated PayPal, before credit cards became secure online for buying things, uh, before there were different ways to connect with people in, you know, in the Web2 world, before there were more tools for creators. It, it takes time. These things will get a lot better fast. There are incredibly smart people leaving some of the best companies in the world to build in this space. They're getting backed uh, by a very large group of many, many billion, you know, over $10 billion in venture money has been raised specifically for Web3 in the last year alone. So the biggest venture firms are backing some of the smartest individuals in the space. And they're going to treat all these challenges, all these problems, everything everyone says is wrong with Web3. They're going to treat these like you know a to-do list. And they're going to start knocking these things out, and we're going to see just an amazing leap in this. And and look, it's going to take some, I think, some you know, some leadership out of Apple and Google, who control ninety plus percent of the mobile phone market. Web three does not work well with mobile today. Uh, but once Apple and Google decide to get into the space, find a way that they're comfortable getting in, um, it's going to be an enormous move. It's going to be the same thing, you know. Look, when Web two was built, Facebook was just a website for a very long time. And, there were and it was not questions. early to the mobile game. <laughs> no, no. And there were big questions on whether they even needed mobile for Facebook. 
and what mobile would look like and how it would work uh, before, you know, and, and, and obviously now everything is mobile. So, you know, once Apple and Google really embrace Web3, find a way to get into it, get comfortable with it. Uh, when the more traditional banking systems get more comfortable with it and find integrations to it, um, those things are going to start to happen very, very, very quickly. And, and I think, look, it'll, you know, it won't happen tomorrow. It might take a year, two years, three years, but these things are going to move very fast. Yeah, this that's I mean, and it's interesting because uh, that's just the the cycle. That's the S curve here is is extremely fast. They're a lot closer together if you were to visualize this uh, in Web three because we always talk about how a month is 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 a year or what have you. Uh, in yeah, it definitely feels time. like dog years. Um, <laughs> there you the go. The speed at which things are getting done here in is just amazing. I mean, look, NBA Top Shot sold a billion dollars worth of products for a company that basically didn't exist in eighteen months. Mm-hmm. You know, what other products have had a billion in sales? Maybe some physical products like the iPhone did a billion in its first year or something. I'm not exactly sure what those numbers are, but I would assume they're in that kind of size and scale. But that's a physical product. I mean, you know, think of a software product that sold a billion dollars in a year. In its yeah. first year of existence, first two years of existence from a startup, this wasn't like a com- an established company adding in something. Um, you know, Apple was a very established company by the time I launched the It iPhone. was a pivot too, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I just think we're going to see things happen very fast. There's, a, you know, I don't know, five, 10 million serious users of these projects at this point of these products now. If you take away, you know, kind of digital ownership of Bitcoin and you'd say that's kind of a different category uh, consumer uses of, of Web3, um, you know, we're going to see some big things launch that are going to bring in tens of millions of users, whether it's a video game or from an existing player like a Fortnite or a Roblox or somebody integrating NFTs who already have tens of millions of users, bringing that into their game, whether it's the continued um, movement by some of these big brands, the NBA, the NFL, you know, Warner Brothers, Movie Studio, and, and so on, who are embracing NFT collectibles. It's just going to keep growing from here. Yeah, it is. There's a there's a few questions I wanted to ask. I mean, uh, about you know, kind of your experience in the space. You know, one of my previous guests was also in venture and came from more of like a technical background, um, but you know, like was creating products in Web two as well. Uh, and one of the things he highlighted was um, the developer tools that are available and the the poor quality, frankly, of of what's available now. Uh, have you looked into that at all? Have you gone down that rabbit hole? Yeah, spent some time. Some of these minting projects with some of the DAO infrastructure projects, they're still clunky. They're still messy. And, and I think it just comes down to the fact that, you know, the wallet and the wallet user interface for the customers is terrible and, and uncomfortable as those become better. Um, and also, as I said earlier, as those become, you know, compatible with, mobile phone apps where things are, you know, just where people have a certain expectation of user interface. Um, I think those will get better, but yeah, no, they're terrible now. Um, and I've tried a few of these platforms, the, the best of them, you know, you can get it done and you can get it done safely. Things like minting sites and, and um, token gated token, you know, either NFT or, or cryptocurrency gated communities or products, things like that. They're, they're around, uh, they're doable. They're getting investment like fast. Um, and they're getting way better quickly, which is great. But yeah, they're still really hard to use um, and not as feature rich as they need to be yet. Look, there are plenty of people building Shopify for NFTs. um, And uh, so Shopify, 
uh, and, and including Jabavai. Yeah, <laughs> Alex um, Danko's do. I think we'll in the team over there. Toby, they're 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 definitely all about token gated commerce right now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And other big companies like Salesforce are integrating NFTs into their projects. Um, so you know, it's coming. It's coming quickly, but yeah, it's still really tough right now. Uh, and um, you know, and and there's a this crazy backlog. If you want to get your smart contracts audited, there are only a few really good companies that have a reputation for doing that. And the line can be two, three months long to just get your smart contract audited by somebody who's got experience, who's trusted by the marketplace. Um, and, and a number of big brands are requiring smart contract audits um, in order to, As know, they to work in these projects. Yeah. And none of that's, you know, there are people working on audit um, automation of audits. Uh, but that hasn't come to fruition yet. It's going to be a little while. I'd, I'd like to see some of the you know big three, big four consulting firms out there. Um, maybe maybe if if we get some regulatory frameworks that require some sort of audits, you'll start to see some of these larger companies putting some resources towards it. I hope. I've talked to some people at the big four accounting firms and consulting firms and some of the larger firms. They're all dabbling. You know, they're all starting to set up groups. They're more moving over people in their existing consulting practices or, or accounting practices than hiring Web3 experts. They're more comfortable kind of having their existing people who are curious and interested about this train on it than they are grabbing somebody from somewhere else. Um, yeah. I think that'll change over time. I think right now the liability is just too high. Um, I know a number of startups that have had to, you know, that are working with larger brands or companies and have had to go out and get like business insurance for things like NFT projects. Absolutely. And wow, is it tough. Yeah. Um, you know, there's very, very few business insurers who will insure anything in this space. Yeah. Most of them are just a flat out no, if this is what you do. Um, and when you have to get insurance, it is crazy, like 10 times the price of what a technology startup would pay for something that didn't have this sort of risk to it. Um, mm -hmm. And those things will change. Uh, you know, those will change. It'll take a little time. Uh, but we'll see those things change. And yeah, I think, look, eventually you'll be able to get a smart audit from Pricewaterhouse or whatever it may be, but it's it's going to be a minute. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So yeah, it sounds like, you know, what we're going to see with these audit firms um, is going to be following this. I mean, it's going to take five to 10 years for a lot of these big consumer brands to get moving. Um, you know, the the metas of the world, the you know, they aren't just going to lay, lay out and just say, hey, look, decentralize my network and take away my dollars. Right. Um, there's going to have to be some big shifts. There's going to be a lot of regulatory. Uh, we, we need we need regulatory frameworks, not not this uh, kind of like regulation by enforcement that we're getting now. No but. doubt. Look, Apple and Google have been um, conservative and slow to move in here. But, you know, look at what the credit card giants, Chase and, and uh, uh, sorry, Visa and MasterCard are doing. Both of them have large and growing crypto practices. Both of them are looking at ways to integrate that to bring in. <laughs> I don't want to lose that 3%. <laughs> no, no. And, and they're being very smart about it. Um, you know, they could win the wallet wars. I like to talk about the wallet wars right now. Obviously, MetaMask is in an enormous lead, uh, but I think it's vulnerable. And and, uh, and I think, you know, whether it's Apple or Google who already have wallets installed on every smartphone in the world, um, you know, you, you're not putting crypto in it. You're putting a credit card in there and using it for things like that, tickets and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it'd be easy for them technologically to extend it. I think they have to get comfortable with it. You know, look, I don't think... Uh, huge banks like Chase and Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Citi, they don't want to lose the wallet wars either. They don't want to see, they make a lot of money off a of credit card interchange. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and being your bank and holding on to your cash. Do they really want to see all of that disappear in the MetaMask? There's no way, right? So those guys are starting to go after it as well. There's going to be a lot of very interesting things. Look, there are going to be regulatory constraints. They're going to have to move slow and, and be very thoughtful about what they do. And, you know, maybe people don't like their banks and maybe people think that their banks are trying to rip them off. Uh, but in general, everybody feels pretty darn comfortable. If you put money in your bank, you're not going to lose it. Um, they're going to give it back to you. And that the government stands behind this. And in developed you may countries. not like your bank. You may not trust them to be honest and uh, and fair in the way they deal with their customers. But you know you're not going to lose your money there. <laughs> you may not <laughs> always expect a high level. That's, that's not something people can say today with MetaMask. There's, you know, every day there's there's horror stories on Twitter of people losing their assets. And that doesn't happen in the traditional banking system because there's plenty of safeguards in place. And, and I think that would be, you know, th- those kinds of things are going to have to happen for, uh, for, you know, mass market, hundreds of millions of people to come into Web3. You start to wonder, I mean, I look, I'm, I don't know the market, I think, as, as well as you do when it comes to wallets. I'm more from a participant perspective than an investor perspective. But you have to wonder uh, the consolidation, what it will look like, right? Because it's going to happen, right, at some point. Uh, may already be happening. But, like, is it going to be MetaMask up into a strategic, like a bank? Uh, or is it going to be one of the existing wallet holders like MetaMask finally learning to take the regulatory side and the keep your customer safe side and uh, a little bit more seriously uh, and kind of building out that infrastructure through the acquisition of some of these smaller wallets? I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, my bet is uh, clip this thing and we'll listen to it in five years. My bet is your wallets are going to be integrated safely into your smartphones by Apple and Google. They are going to win. Uh, Maybe it'll be a MetaMask wallet or a Chase wallet or a Visa wallet. But how you're actually going to use it is through, you know, through the phone. Um, And it's going to be Apple and Google allowing those wallets to come into their wallet ecosystem to integrate and seamlessly and transact with apps within their phones. Um, and they're going to charge a tax. It's not going to be the 30% tax uh, that they charge today on in-app purchases, but they're going to charge a tax on every transaction that goes through the wallets. And I think, you know, that's how this is going to get to billions of people scale from tens of millions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like if you look at it from a first principles perspective, where where do you have to be? You have to be in your phone, right? And who has the two biggest operating systems on the phone? Apple and Google Android, right? Absolutely. Um, so, and I think yeah. that's where it goes. But look, it may end up being that you have a, you know, if you bank with Chase, you have a Chase digital wallet that just gets given to you. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they custody your assets for you and you feel comfortable with it. And they put a lot of, um, you know, safeguards in place so that your stuff can't get taken. And uh, and look, I get this whole, you know, not your keys, not your tokens nonsense. I understand that kind of maximalist thinking. Uh, but, you know, 99 percent of Americans don't give a crap about any of that. And they just want to know that what they buy, what they spend their money on is theirs and safe. It can't be taken. And they'll yeah. happily allow Chase to hold on to the tokens for them whether they're NFTs or, or crypto, in order to feel comfortable that they're not going to lose things that are valuable to them. Yeah, and and so I think that's how this will ultimately get delivered. And look, could it be MetaMask getting bought by a traditional financial player? Maybe, you know, or maybe they just roll out their own. I, I don't know. But I think we'll see it, you know, rolled up to large finance companies at some point and integrated into uh, the mobile phones. That's how we get from, you know, whatever we're at, 5, 10 million active users of these products to billions. 
Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, it, honestly, it's a great transition. Uh, you're going to have to add a little bit of icing to the cake you just baked for us. Uh, but uh, nice dad joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, but but my traditional closing question for everybody is, you know, where where do you see yourself and Web3 in the next six to 12 months? And then where do you see yourself and Web3 in the next five to 10 years? Feel free to build directly on what you're saying, because that is foundational. But um, yeah, let's let's take it a step further. I'll take the first part first. So next six to 12 months, you know, I, I, um, where I hope to see myself is some of the investments that we've made. Like I said, we've got nine companies already with, you know, products and projects out there in Web3. I hope that uh, at least one or two or maybe even all nine of these suckers will be rocking and rolling and, and setting new standards and bringing on hundreds of thousands or millions of new users to Web3 and, and creating, uh, you know, some amazing projects that bring in new people to the space and, and make themselves and, and, and me a little bit of money. Um, so I'd like to see that over the next six to 12 months. I hope that we'll continue to get opportunities over that period to invest in, you know, some of the most exciting new projects that are coming to market and backing the most amazing founders we can. So that's my, that's my day job. Um, you know, in, in the, in the next five to 10 years, um, you know, uh, I don't want to, uh, we'll save it for a later episode, but, you know, I'm exploring ways to uh, use Web3 and, and communities built around Web3 to support more founders. Um, our group, Beyond the Game, and myself individually, have been very big at supporting diverse founders, especially here in Atlanta. Uh, all of my athlete partners are minorities or women or both, and, uh, and we um, have had a, a big push to support diverse founders. Um, almost half of our investment portfolio has diverse founders in the founding team. And I'm exploring some really exciting ways, which you know, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna spill all the beans here on this one uh, about that. We'll save it for the launch, uh, the launch conversation in a couple months, hopefully. Uh, but I hope that that is up and running and that we've utilized some of these tools to bring um, you know, uh, black and Latinx and women and other uh, diverse founders into this space. The early winners in Web3 have been white and Asian dudes, just like the early winners in Web2 and Web1. Um, and I think we're still early enough where we can change that and bring a more diverse group of founders to the space, especially here in Atlanta, where I think we have one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse tech ecosystems in the country. Um, so I would say five to 10 years, I'd hope that that's where I am. I think within five to 10 years, uh, just about everything in your life is going to be an NFT or digital asset in a digital wallet. I think your driver's license, your passport, your house deed, your car title, your credit card loans, your credit cards themselves, they're all going to be on chain. Uh, I think all of that happens over the course of the next decade. Some things much faster, some things a little slower. Uh, but I expect all of that to happen as this all goes mainstream. There's no reason for important things to be stored on paper uh, or to be stored in individual companies individual databases the way that they are now companies or governmental databases i think it all moves on chain over the next decade um and so that's kind of you know where i think everything goes yeah that's beautiful and and i love that you alluded to to something that we are working on um i think uh, there'll be a very good episode for for the launch of that coming up so yeah i'm super excited to have met you brian this conversation has been amazing look forward to, to building this relationship and uh thanks for coming on the show Thanks, Zach. It's been a lot of fun and look forward to uh, coming back and uh, having more to talk about as, uh, as we continue to get deeper and deeper into Web3. Thanks for joining Web3 with me. Make sure to follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. 
Also, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review as it'll help us reach more people. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at offedge underscore. Thanks for vibing in the verse with me and hope you'll join us next time.